This episode is brought to you by BunnySlippers.com. Check out their Highland Cow Slipper. It's fuzzy, it's wooly, I know it's summertime, but you know what's nice? Uh, something to get for someone later this year, uh, maybe something to wear around your cold apartment uh, in the early mornings, uh, maybe you've got cold concrete floors, maybe you live in New Zealand, or Chile, or someone else, bleh, somewhere else that's cool this time of year. Who knows? But uh, BunnySlippers.com has a wide array of slippers to choose from, all kinds of interests and animals and all kinds of cool, fun stuff. You'll find something you'll like at BunnySlippers.com. Yeah, it's that simple, BunnySlippers.com. Highland Cow Slipper, it's a big woolly bull, and I love my Highland Cow Slippers. Wear them all the time in the studio, which does have a chilly floor even in the summer, especially when I crank up the AC, because I'm a baby when it comes to heat. Unless I'm working in a kitchen, then I forget to drink water and pass out uh, sometime around 12 hours. <laughs> anyway, that's one reason DB Spitzer doesn't work in kitchens much anymore. Uh, let's also talk about this month uh, is the end of June, and we're going to finish that up with some W.E.B. Du Bois. So if you hear any noise, it's just me and Du Bois. Hit me. Um, so, yeah. And that was a uh, Parliament uh, reference. And if you want to learn more about Parliament, go to your local library or check this out. Alexa, play Parliament. Siri, play Parliament. And now, now you know, <laughs> somewhere in your house, maybe, uh, a robot is playing music for you. Enjoy. So here we go. Uh, this show is always brought to you by BunnySlippers.com and listeners like you buying our cool t-shirts that you'll find on PGTTCM.com. You can check the show notes to find out where to go, or you can just simply, I don't know, find us on Facebook. We've got a link somewhere to somewhere. You buy shirts. It keeps the show going. Makes me happy. Makes you happy. Everyone gets something. We also have a Patreon thing going on and a patron thing going on. Not really much going on with either of those, so do what you want with those. Text me, let me know if you do subscribe to any of those so I can mention your name and say, hey, check this person out. Also, if you have questions about anything about the show, if you want to talk about anything, we've got a contact form at pgttcm.com. Tell your friends about us. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe anywhere um, that you find your podcasts. I recommend Apple because that's where I get all my feedback from. All right, thank you. Here we go. The Honorable Charles Smith, Miss Sarah's brother, was walking swiftly uptown from Mr. Easterly's Wall Street office, and his face was pale. At last, the Cotton Combine was to all appearances an assured fact, and he was slated for the Senate. The price he had paid was high. He was to represent the interests of the new trust, and sundry favorable measures were already drafted and reposing in the safe of the Combine's legal department. Among others was one relating to child labor, another that would affect certain changes in the tariff, and a proposed law providing for a cotton bale of a shape and dimensions different from the customary, the last constituating a particularly clever artifice which, under the guise of convenience in handling, would necessitate the installation of entirely new gin and compressed machinery, to be supplied, of course, by the trust. As Mr. Smith drew near Mrs. Gray's Murray Hill residence, his face had melted to a cynical smile. After all, why should he care? 
He had tried independence and philanthropy and failed. Why should he not be as other men? He had seen many others that very day swallow the golden bait and promise everything. They were gentlemen. Why should he pose as better than his fellows? There was young Cresswell. Did his aristocratic air prevent his succumbing to the lure of millions and promising the influence of his father and the whole Farmers League to the new project? Mr. Smith snapped his fingers and rang the bell. The door opened softly. The dark woodwork of the old English wainscoting glowed with the crimson flaming of logs in the wide fireplace. There was just the touch of early autumn chill in the air without that made both the fire and the table with its soft linen, gold and silver plate, and twinkling glasses a warming, satisfying sight. Mrs. Gray was a portly woman, inclined to think much of her dinner and her clothes, both of which were always rich and costly. She was not herself a notably intelligent woman, She greatly admired intelligence or whatever looked to her like intelligence in others. Her money, too, was to her an ever-worrying mystery and surprise, which she found herself always scheming to husband shrewdly and spend philanthropically, a difficult combination. As she awaited her guest, she surveyed the table with both satisfaction and disquietude, for her social functions were few. Tonight there were, she checked them off on her fingers, Sir James Crichton, the rich English manufacturer, and Lady Crichton, Mr. and Mrs. Vanderpool, Mr. Harry Cresswell and his sister, John Taylor and his sister, and Mr. Charles Smith, whom the evening papers mentioned as likely to be United States Senator from New Jersey, a selection of guests that had been determined unknown to the hostess by the meeting of cotton interests earlier in the day. Mrs. Gray's chef was high-priced and efficient, and her butler was the envy of many, Consequently, she knew the dinner would be good. To her intense satisfaction, it was far more than this. It was a most agreeable couple of hours. All save perhaps Mr. Smith, unbent, the Englishman especially, and the Vanderpools were most gracious. But if the general pleasure was owing to any one person particularly, it was to Mr. Harry Cresswell. Mrs. Gray had met Southerners before, but not intimately, and she always had in mind vividly their cruelty to poor Negroes a subject she made a point of introducing forthwith. She was therefore most agreeably surprised to hear Mr. Cresswell express himself so cordially as approving of Negro education. Why, I thought, said Mrs. Gray, that you Southerners rather disapproved, or at least, Mr. Cresswell inclined his head courteously. We Southerners, my dear Mrs. Gray, are responsible for a variety of reputations. And he told an anecdote that set the table laughing. Seriously, though, he continued, we are not as black as the blacks paint us, although on the whole I prefer that Helen should marry a white man. They all glanced at Miss Cresswell, who lay softly back in her chair like a white lily, gleaming and bejeweled, her pale face flushing under the scrutiny. Mrs. Gray was horrified. Why, why the idea, she sputtered. Why, Mr. Cresswell, how can you conceive of anything else? No northerner dreams. Mr. Cresswell sipped his wine slowly. No, no, I do not think that you do mean that. He paused and the Englishman bent forward. Really now, you do not mean to say that there's a danger of, of amalgamation, do you? He sang. Mr. Cresswell explained. No, of course there was no immediate danger, but... When people were suddenly thrust beyond their natural station, filled with wild ideas and impossible ambitions, it meant terrible danger to southern white women. 
Do you believe in some education? asked Mary Taylor. I believe in the training of people to their highest capacity. The Englishman here heartily seconded him. But, Cresswell added significantly, capacity differs enormously between races. The Vanderpools were sure of this, and the Englishman, instancing India, became quite eloquent. Mrs. Gray was mystified, but hardly dared admit it. The general trend of the conversation seemed to be that most individuals needed to be submitted to the sharpest scrutiny before being allowed much education. And as for the lower races, it was simply criminal to open such useless opportunities to them. Why, I had a colored servant girl once, laughed Mrs. Vanderpool by way of climax, who spent half her wages on piano lessons. Then Mary Taylor, whose conscience was uncomfortable, said, But, Mr. Cresswell, you surely believe in schools like Miss Smith's. Decidedly, returned Mr. Cresswell with enthusiasm. It has done great good. Mrs. Gray was gratified and murmured something of Miss Smith's sacrifice. Positively heroic, added Cresswell, avoiding his sister's eyes. Of course, Mary Taylor hastened to encourage this turn of the conversation. There are many points on which Miss Smith and I disagree, but... I think everybody admires her work. Mrs. Gray wanted particulars. What did you disagree about? She asked bluntly. I may be responsible for some of the disagreement, interrupted Mr. Cresswell hesitatingly. I'm afraid Miss Smith does not approve of us white southerners. What do you mean to say you can't even advise her? Oh, no, we can, but we're not、uh, exactly welcome. In fact, said Cresswell gravely, the chief criticism I have against your northerner school for Negroes is that they not only fail to enlist the sympathy and aid of the best southerners, they even repel it. That is very wrong, very wrong, commented the Englishman warmly, a sentiment in which Mrs. Gray hastened to agree. Of course, continued Cresswell, I am free to confess that I have no personal desire to dabble in philanthropy or conduct schools of any kind. My hands are full of other matters. But it's precisely the advice of such disinterested men that philanthropic work needs, Mr. Vanderpool urged. Well, I volunteered advice once in this case, and I shan't repeat the experiment soon, said Cresswell, laughing. Mrs. Gray wanted to hear the incident, but the young man was politely reluctant. Mary Taylor, however, related the tale of Zora to Mrs. Gray's private ear later. Fortunately, said Mr. Vanderpool, Northerners and Southerners are arriving at a better mutual understanding on most of these matters. Yes, indeed, Cresswell agreed. After all, they never were far apart, even in slavery days. Both sides were honest and sincere. All through the dinner, Mr. Smith had been preoccupied and taciturn. Now he abruptly shot a glance at Cresswell. I suppose that one was right and one was wrong. No, said Cresswell. Both were right. I thought the only excuse for fighting was a great right. If right is on neither side or simultaneously on both, then war is not only hell. But damnation! Mrs. Gray looked shocked, and Mrs. Vanderpool smiled. How about fighting for exercise? she suggested. At any rate, we can agree on helping those poor victims of our quarrel 
as far as their limited capacity will allow, and no further, for that is impossible. Very soon after dinner, Charles Smith excused himself. He was not yet inured to the ways of high finance, and the program of the cotton barons as unfolded that day lay heavy on his mind, despite all his philosophy. I have had a full day, he explained to Mrs. Gray. End of chapter 13、The、rain was sweeping down in great thick winding sheets. The wind screamed in the ancient Cresswell oaks and swirled across the swamp in loud, wild gusts. The waters roared and gurgled in the streams and along the roadside. Then, when the wind fell murmuring away, the clouds grew blacker and blacker, and rain in long, slim columns fell straight from heaven to earth, digging itself into the land and throwing back the red mud in angry flashes. So it rained for one long week. And so for seven endless days, Bless watched it with leaden heart. He knew the Silver Fleece, his and Zora's, must be ruined. It was the first great sorrow of his life. It was not so much the loss of the cotton itself, but the fantasy, the hopes, the dreams built around it. If it failed, would not they fail? Was not this angry, beating rain, this dull, spiritless drizzle, this wild war of air and earth, but foretaste and prophecy of ruin and discouragement? Of the utter futility of striving? But if his own despair was great, his pain at the plight of Zorb made it almost unbearable. He did not see her in these seven days. He pictured her huddled there in the swamp in the cheerless leaky cabin with worse than no companions. Ah, the swamp, the cruel swamp. It was a fearful place in the rain, its oozing mud and fetid vapors, its clinging slimy draperies, how they twined about the bones of his victims and chilled their hearts. Yet here his Zora, his poor disappointed child, was imprisoned. Child? He had always called her child. But now in the inward illumination of these dark days, he knew her as neither child nor sister nor friend, but as the one woman. The revelation of his love lighted and brightened slowly till it flamed like a sunrise over him and left him in burning wonder. He panted to know if she too knew or knew and cared not. Or cared and knew not. She was so strange and human a creature. To her, all things meant something. Nothing was aimless. Nothing merely happened. Was this rain beating down and back her love for him, or had she never loved? He walked to his room, gripping his hands, peering through the misty windows toward the swamp. Rain, rain, rain. Nothing but rain. The world was water veiled in mists. Then of a sudden, at midday, the sun shot out, hot and still. No breath of air stirred. The sky was like blue steel. The earth steamed. Bless rushed to the edge of the swamp and stood there irresolute. Perhaps if the water had but drained from the cotton, it was so strong and tall. But pshaw! Where was the use of imagining? The lagoon had been level with the dikes a week ago, and now. He could almost see the beautiful silver fleece bedraggled, drowned, and rolling beneath the black lake of slime. He went back to his work, but eagerly in the morning, the thought of it lured him again. He must at least see the grave of his hope in Zora's, and out of it resurrect new love and strength. Perhaps she too might be there, waiting, weeping. He started at the thought. He hurried forth sadly. The raindrops were still dripping and gleaming from the trees. 
flashing back the heavy yellow sunlight. He splashed and stamped along farther and farther onward until he neared the rampart of the clearing and put foot upon the tree bridge. Then he looked down. The lagoon was dry. He stood a moment bewildered, then turned and rushed upon the island. A great sheet of dazzling sunlight swept the place, and beneath lay a mighty mass of olive green, thick, tall, wet, and willowy. The squares of cotton, sharp-edged, heavy, were just about to burst to bowls, and underneath the land lay carefully drained and black. For one long moment he paused, stupid, agape, with utter amazement, then leaned dizzily against a tree. The swamp, the eternal swamp, had been drained in its deepest fastness, but... How? How? He gazed about, perplexed, astonished. What a field of cotton! What a marvelous field! But how had it been saved? He skirted the island slowly, stopping near Zora's oak. Here lay the reading of the riddle. With infinite work and pain, someone had dug a canal from the lagoon to the creek, into which the former had drained by a long and crooked way, thus allowing it to empty directly. The canal went straight, a hundred yards through stubborn soil, and it was oozing now with slimy waters. He sat down, weak, bewildered, and one thought was uppermost. Sora! And with the thought came a low moan of pain. He wheeled and leapt toward the dripping shelter of the tree. There she lay, wet, bedraggled, motionless, gray, pallid beneath her dark-drawn skin, her burning eyes searching restlessly for some lost thing, her lips a-moaning. In dumb despair, he dropped beside her and gathered her in his arms. The earth staggered beneath him as he stumbled on. The mud splashed and sunlight glistened. He saw long snakes slithering across his path, and fear struck beasts fleeing before his coming. He paused for neither path nor way, but went straight for the school, running in mighty strides. Yet gently, listening to the moans that struck death upon his heart, once he fell headlong, but with a great wrench held her from harm and minded not the pain that shot through his ribs. The yellow sunshine beat fiercely around and upon him as he stumbled into the highway, lurched across the mud-strewn road, and panted up the porch. Miss Smith, he gasped, and then darkness. The years of the days of her dying were ten. The boy that entered the darkness and the shadow of death emerged a man, a silent man and grave, "'working furiously and haunting, day and night, "'the little window above the door. "'At last, of one gray morning when the earth was stillest, "'they came and told him, "'She will live.' "'And he went out under the stars, "'lifted his long arms and sobbed, "'Curse me, O God, if I let me lose her again.' "'And God remembered this in after years. "'The hope and dream of harvest was upon the land. "'The cotton crop was short and poor because of the great rain, "'but the sun had saved the best.' and the price had soared. So the world was happy, and the face of the black belt green and luxuriant with thickening flecks of the coming foam of the cotton. Up in the sick room, Zora lay on the little white bed. The net and web of endless things had been crawling and creeping around her. She had struggled in dumb, speechless terror against some mighty grasping that strove for her life with gnarled and creeping fingers. But now at last, weakly, she opened her eyes and questioned, Bless, where is he? The silver fleece, how was it? The sun, the swamp. Then, finding all well, she closed her eyes and slept. After some days, they let her sit by the window, and she saw Bless pass, but drew back timidly when he looked. 
and he saw only the flutter of her gown and waved. At last there came a day when they let her walk down to the porch, and she felt the flickering of her strength again. Yet she looked different. Her buxom comeliness was spiritualized. Her face looked smaller, and her masses of hair, brought low about her ears, heightened her ghostly beauty. Her skin was darkly transparent, and her eyes looked out from velvet veils of gloom. For a while she lay in her chair in happy, dreamy pleasure at sun and bird and tree. Bless did not know yet that she was down, but soon he would come searching, for he came each hour, and she pressed her little hands against her breast to still the beating of her heart and the bursting wonder of her love. Then suddenly a panic seized her. He must not find her here. Not here. There was but one place on all the earth for them to meet, and that was yonder in the silver fleece. She rose with a fleeting glance, gathered the shawl around her, then, gliding forward, wavering tremulous, slipped across the road and into the swamp. The dark mystery of the swamp swept over her. The place was hers. She had been born within its borders. Within its borders she had lived and grown, and within its borders she had met her love. On she hurried until sweeping down to the lagoon and the island, lo, the cotton lay before her. A great white foam was spread upon its brown and green. The whole field was waving and shivering in the sunlight. A low cry of pleasure burst from her lips. She forgot her weakness and picking her way across the bridge, stood still amid the cotton that nestled about her shoulders, clasping it lovingly in her hands. He heard that she was downstairs and ran to meet her with beating heart. The chair was empty, but he knew. There was but one place for these two souls to meet. Yet it was far, and he feared and ran with startled eyes. She stood on the island, ethereal, splendid, like some tall, dark, and gorgeous flower of the storied east. The green and white of the cotton billowed and foamed about her breasts. The red scarf burned upon her neck. The dark brown velvet of her skin pulsed warm and tremulous with the uprushing blood, and in the midnight depths of her great eyes flamed the mighty fires of long-concealed and newborn love. He darted through the trees and paused, a tall man, strongly but slimly made. He threw up his hands in the old way and hallowed. Happily she crooned back a low mother melody and waited. He came down to her slowly with fixed, hungry eyes, threading his way amid the fleece. She did not move, but lifted both her dark hands, white with cotton, and then, as he came, casting it suddenly to the winds. In tears and laughter she swayed and dropped, quivering in his arms, and all the world was sunshine and peace. End of chapter 14 Harry Cresswell was scowling over his breakfast. It was not because his apartment in the New York Hotel was not satisfactory, or his breakfast unpalatable. Possibly a rather bewildering night in Broadway was expressing its influence, but he was satisfied that his ill temper was due to a paragraph in the morning paper. It is stated on good authority that the widow of the late multimillionaire Job Gray will announce a large and carefully planned scheme of Negro education in the South, and will richly endow schools in South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, Louisiana, and Texas. Cresswell finally thrust his food away. He knew that Mrs. Gray helped Miss Smith's school and supposed she would continue to do so. With that in mind, he had striven to impress her, hoping that she might trust his judgment in later years. 
He had no idea, however, that she meant to endow the school or entertained wholesale plans for Negro education. The knowledge made him suspicious. Why had neither Mary nor John Taylor mentioned this? Was there, after all, some nigger-loving conspiracy back of the cotton combine? He took his hat and started downtown. Once in John Taylor's Broadway office, he opened the subject abruptly. The more so, perhaps, because he felt a resentment against Taylor for certain unnamed or partially voiced assumptions. Here was a place, however, for speech, and he spoke almost roughly. Taylor, what does this mean? He thrust the clipping at him. Mean? That Mrs. Gray is going to get rid of some of her surplus cash. Is going to endow some nigger schools. Taylor dryly retorted. It must be stopped, declared Cresswell. The other's brows drew up. Why? In a surprised tone. Why? Why? Do you think the plantation system can be maintained without laborers? Do you think there's the slightest chance of cornering cotton and buying the black belt if the niggers are unwilling to work under present conditions? Do you know the man that stands ready to gobble up every inch of the cotton land on this country at a price which no trust can hope to rival? John Taylor's interest quickened. Why no? He returned sharply. Who? The black man. Whose woolly head is filled with ideas of rising? We're striving by main force to prevent this, and here come your damn northern philanthropists to plant schools. Why, Taylor? It'll knock the cotton trust to hell. Don't get excited," said Taylor judiciously. "We've got things in our hands. It's the gray money, you know, that is back of us. That's just what confounds me," declared the perplexed young man. "Are you men fools or rascals?" Don't you see the two schemes can't mix? They're dead opposite, mutually contradictory. Absolutely. Taylor checked him. It was odd to behold Harry Cresswell so disturbed. Well, wait a moment. Let's see. Sit down. Wish I had a cigar for you, but I don't smoke. Do you happen to have any whiskey handy? No, I don't drink. Well, what the devil? Oh well, fire away. Now see here, we control the gray millions. Of course, we've got to let her play with her income, and that's considerable. Her favorite game just now is Negro education, and she's planning to go in heavy. Her adviser in this line, however, is Smith, and he belongs to us. What Smith? Why the man who's going to be senator from New Jersey? He has a sister teaching in the South. You know, of course, it's at your home where my sister Mary taught. Great Scott! Is that woman's brother planning to spend this money? Why are you daft? See here, American cotton spinning supremacy is built on cheap cotton. Cheap cotton is built on cheap negros. Educating, or rather, trying to educate negros, will make them restless and discontented. That is scarce and dear as workers. Don't you see? You're planning to cut off your noses. This Smith School, particularly, has nearly ruined our plantation. It's stuck almost in our front yard. You are planning to put our plow hands all to studying Greek, and at the same time, to corner the cotton crop. Rot. John Taylor caressed his lean jaw. New point of view to me. I sort of thought education would improve things in the South. He commented, unmoved. It would if we ran it. We. Yes, we Southerners. Um. I see. See here. Let's talk to Easterly about this. They went into the next office and, after a while, got audience with the trust magnate. 
Mr. Easterly heard the matter carefully and waved it aside. Oh, that doesn't concern us, Taylor. Let Cresswell take care of the whole thing. We'll see that Smith does what Cresswell wants. But Taylor shook his head. Smith would kick. Mrs. Gray would get suspicious and the devil be to pay. This is better. Form a big committee of northern businessmen like yourself, philanthropists like Vanderpool and southerners like Cresswell. Let them be a sort of Negro education steering committee. We'll see that on such committee, you southerners get what you want. Control of Negro education. That sounds fair, but how about the Smith School? My father writes me that they're showing signs of expecting money right off. Is that true? If it is, I want it stopped. It will ruin our campaign for the Farmers League. John Taylor looked at Cresswell. He thought he saw something more than general policy or even racial prejudice, something personal in his vehemence. The Smith School was evidently a severe thorn in the flesh of this man, all the more reason for mollifying him. Then, too, there was something in his argument. It was not wise to start educating these Negroes and getting them discontented just now. Ignorant labor was not ideal, but it was worth too much to employers to lose it now. Educated Negro labor might be worth more to Negroes, but not to the cotton combine. Hmm. Well, then. And John Taylor went into a brown study while Cresswell puffed impatiently at a cigarette. I have it, said Taylor. Cresswell sat up. First, let Mr. Easterly get Smith. Easterly turned to the telephone. Is that you, Smith? Well, this is Easterly. Yes, how about Mrs. Gray's education schemes? Yes. Hmm. Well, see here, Smith, we must go a little easy there. Oh, no, no. But to advertise just now a big scheme of Negro education would drive the Cresswells, the Farmers League, and the whole business south dead against us. Yes, yes, indeed. They believe in education all right, but they ain't in for training lawyers and professors just yet. No, I don't suppose her school is... Well, then, see here. She'll be reasonable, won't she, and placate the Cresswells? No, I mean run the school to suit their ideas. No, no, but in general, along the lines which they could approve. Yes, I thought so. Of course. Goodbye. Inclined to be a little nasty, asked Taylor. A little sharp, but tractable. Now, Mr. Cresswell, the thing is in your hands. We'll get this committee, which Taylor suggests appointed, and send it on a junket to Alabama. You do the rest, see? Who'll be the committee, asked Cresswell. Name it. Mr. Cresswell smiled and left. The winter started in severely, and it was easy to fill two private cars with members of the new Negro Education Board right after Thanksgiving. Cresswell had worked carefully and with caution. There was Mrs. Gray, comfortable and beaming. Mr. Easterly, who thought this a good business opportunity, and his family. Mrs. Vanderpool liked the South and was amused at the trip and had induced Mr. Vanderpool to come by stories of shooting. Ah, said Mr. Vanderpool. Mr. Charles Smith and John Taylor were both too busy to go, but bronchial trouble induced the Reverend Dr. Boldish of St. Faith's Rich Parish to be one of the party, and at the last moment Temple Bolcom, the sociologist, consented to join. Awfully busy, he said, but I've been reading up on the Negro problem since you mentioned the matter to me last week, Mr. Cresswell, and I think I understand it thoroughly. I may be able to help out. The necessary spice of young womanhood was added to the party by Miss Taylor and Miss Cresswell, together with the silent Miss Boldish. They were a comfortable and sometimes merry party. Dr. Boldish pointed out the loafers at the stations, especially the black ones. 
Mr. Bocum counted them and estimated the number of hours of work lost at ten cents an hour. Do they get that? Ten cents an hour? asked Miss Taylor. Oh, I don't know, replied Mr. Bocum. But suppose they do. For instance, that is an average wage today. They look lazy, said Mrs. Gray. They are lazy, said Mr. Cresswell. So am I, added Mrs. Vanderpool, suppressing a yawn. It is uninteresting, murmured her husband, preparing for a nap. On the whole, the members of the party enjoyed themselves from the moment they drew out of Jersey City to the afternoon when, in four carriages, they rolled beneath the curious eyes of all Tombsville and swept under the shadowed rampart of the swamp. The Christmas was coming and all the southern world was busy. Few people were busier than Bless and Zora. Slowly, wonderfully for them, heaven bent in these dying days of the year and kissed the earth, and the tremor thrilled all lands and seas. Everything was good. All things were happy, and these two were happiest of all. Out of the shadows and hesitations of childhood, they had stepped suddenly into manhood and womanhood, with firm feet and uplifted heads. All the day that was theirs they worked, picking the silver fleece, picking it tenderly and lovingly from off the brown and spent bodies which had so utterly yielded life and beauty to the full fruition of this long and silken tendril, this white beauty of the cotton. November came and flew, and still the unexhausted field yielded its frothing fruit. Today seemed doubly glorious, for Bless had spoken of their marriage. With twined hands and arms, and lips ever and again seeking their mates, they walked the leafy way. Unconscious, wrapped, they stepped out into the big road skirting the edge of the swamp. Why not? Was it not the king's highway? And love was king. So they talked on. Unknowing that far up the road the Cresswell coaches were wheeling along with precious burdens. In the first carriage were Mrs. Gray and Mrs. Vanderpool, Mr. Cresswell and Miss Taylor. Mrs. Vanderpool was lolling luxuriously, but Mrs. Gray was a little stiff with long travel and sat upright. Mr. Cresswell looked clean cut and handsome, and Miss Taylor seemed complacent and responsible. The dying of the day soothed them insensibly. Groups of dark little children passed them as they neared the school, staring with wide eyes and greeting timidly. There seems to be marrying and giving in marriage, laughed Mrs. Vanderpool. Not very much, said Mr. Cresswell dryly. Well, at least plenty of children. Plenty. But where are the houses? asked Mrs. Gray. Perhaps in the swamp, said Mrs. Vanderpool lightly, looking up at the somber trees that lined the left. They live where they please and do as they please, Cresswell explained, to which Mrs. Vanderpool added, Like other animals. Mary Taylor opened her lips to rebuke this levity when suddenly the coachman called out and the horses swerved, and the carriage's four occupants faced a young man and a young woman embracing heartily. Out through the wood, Bless and Zora had come to the broad red road. Playfully, he celebrated all her beauty, unconscious of time and place. You are tall and bend like grasses in the swamp, he said. And yet look up to you, she murmured. Your eyes are darkness dressed in night. To see you brighter, dear, she said. Your little hands are much too frail for work. They must grow larger then and soon. Your feet are too small to travel on. They'll travel on to you. That's far enough. Your lips... Your full and purple lips were made alone for kissing, not for words. They'll do for both. He laughed in utter joy and touched her hair with light caressing hands. It does not fly with sunlight, she said quickly with an upward glance. No, he answered. 
It sits and listens to the night. But even as she nestled to him happily, there came the harsh thunder of horses' hooves beating on their ears. He drew her quickly to him in fear, and the coach lurched and turned and left them facing four pairs of eyes. Miss Taylor reddened. Mrs. Gray looked surprised. Mrs. Vanderpool smiled. But Mr. Cresswell darkened with anger. The couple unclasped, shamefacedly, and the young man lifted his hat, starting to stammer an apology. But Cresswell interrupted him. Keep your, your philander into the woods, or I shall have you arrested, he said slowly, his face colorless, his lips twitching with anger. Drive on, John. Miss Taylor felt that her worst suspicions had been confirmed. But Mrs. Vanderpool was curious as to the cause of Cresswell's anger. It was so genuine that it needed explanation. Are kisses illegal here? She asked before the horses started, turning the battery of her eyes full upon him. But Cresswell had himself well in hand. No, he said, but the girl is notorious. On the lovers, the words fell like a blow. Zora shivered, and a grayish horror mottled the dark burning of her face. Bless started in anger, then paused in shivering doubt. What had happened? They knew not. Yet involuntarily their hands fell apart. They avoided each other's eyes. I, I must go now, gasped Zora as the carriage swept away. He did not hold her. He did not offer the farewell kiss, but stood staring at the road as she walked into the swamp. A moment she paused and looked back. Then slowly, almost painfully, she took the path back to the field of the fleece. And reaching it after long, long minutes, began mechanically to pick the cotton. But the cotton glowed crimson in the failing sun. Bless walked toward the school. What had happened? He kept asking. And yet he dared not question the awful shape that sat somewhere, cold and still, behind his soul. He heard the hooves of the horses again. It was Miss Taylor being brought back to the school to greet Miss Smith and break the news of the coming of the party. He raised his hat. She did not return the greeting. But he found her pausing at the gate. It seemed to her too awful for this foolish fellow thus to throw himself away. She faced him and he flinched as from some descending blow. Bless, she said primly. Have you absolutely no shame? He braced himself and raised his head proudly. I am going to marry her. It is no crime. Then he noted the expression on her face and paused. She stepped back, scandalized. Can it be, bless Alwyn, she said, that you don't know what sort of girl she is? He raised his hands and warded off her words, dumbly as she turned to go, almost frightened at the havoc she saw, the heavens flamed scarlet in his eyes, and he screamed, It's a lie! It's a damn lie! He wheeled about and tore into the swamp. It's a damn lie! He shouted to the trees. Is it? Is it? chirped the birds. It's a cruel falsehood, he moaned. Is it? Is it? whispered the devils within. It seemed to him as though suddenly the world was staggering and faltering about him. The trees bent curiously, and strange breathings were upon the breezes. He unbuttoned his collar that he might get more air. A thousand things he had forgotten surged suddenly to life. Slower and slower he ran. More and more the thoughts crowded his head. He thought of that first red night and the yelling and singing and wild dancing. He thought of Cresswell's bitter words. He thought of Zora telling how she stayed out nights. He thought of the little bower that he had built her in the cotton field. A wild fear struggled with his anger, but he kept repeating, No, no. And then, at any rate, she will tell me the truth. 
She had never lied to him. She would not dare. He clenched his hands, murder in his heart. Slowly and more slowly he ran. He knew where she was, where she must be, waiting. And yet, as he drew near, huge hands held him back, and heavy weights clogged his feet. His heart said, On, quick! She will tell the truth, and all will be well. His mind said, Slow, slow, this is the end. He hurled the thought aside and crashed through the barrier. She was standing still and listening with a huge basket of the piled froth of the field upon her head. One long brown arm, tender with curvings, balanced the cotton. The other, poised, balanced the slim, swaying body. Bending, she listened, her eyes shining, her lips apart, her bosom fluttering at the well-known step. He burst into her view with the fury of a beast, rending the wood away and trampling the underbrush, reeling and muttering until he saw her. She looked at him, her hands dropped. She stood very still with drawn face, grayish-brown, both hands unconsciously outstretched and the cotton swaying, while deep down in her eyes, dimly, slowly, a horror lit and grew. He paused a moment, then came slowly onward, doggedly, drunkenly with torn clothes, flying collar and red eyes. Then he paused again, still beyond arm's length, looking at her with fear-struck eyes. The cotton on her head shivered and dropped in a pure mass of white and silvery snow about her limbs. Her hands fell limply, and the horror flamed in her wet eyes. He struggled with his voice, but it grated and came hoarse and hard from his quivering throat. Zora! Yes, Bless? You... you told me. You were pure. She was silent, but her body went all a-tremble. He stepped forward until she could almost touch him. There, standing straight and tall, he glared down upon her. Answer me, he whispered in a voice hard with its tight-held sobs. A misery darkened her face and the light died from her eyes. Yet she looked at him bravely, and her voice came low and full as from afar. I asked you what it meant to be pure, Bless, and... And you told, and, and I told you the truth. What it meant, what it meant, he repeated in the low, tense anguish. But, but bless, she faltered. There came an awful pleading in her eyes. Her hand groped toward him, but he stepped slowly back. But bless, you said, willingly, you said, if, if she knew. He thundered back in livid anger. Knew? All women know. You should have died. Sobs were rising and shaking her from head to foot, but she drove them back and gripped her breast with her hands. No, Bless. No. All girls do not know. I was a child. Not since I knew you, Bless. Never. Never since I saw you. Since. Since, he groaned. Christ. But before? Yes, before. My God. She knew the end had come, yet she babbled on tremblingly. He was our master, and all the other girls that gathered there did his will. I, I, she choked and faltered, and he drew farther away. I began running away, and they hunted me through the swamps, and, and then, then I reckon I'd have gone back and been as they all are. But you came, bless, you came, and you, you were a new great thing in my life, and, and, and yet I was afraid I was not worthy until you, you said the words. I thought you knew, and I thought that, that purity was just wanting to be pure. He ground his teeth in fury. Oh, he was an innocent, a blind baby, the joke and laughing stock of the country around, 
with yokels grinning at him and pale-faced devils laughing aloud. The teachers knew, the girls knew, God knew, everybody but he knew. Poor, blind, deaf mole, stupid jackass that he was, he must run, run away from this world, and far off in some free land, beat back his pain. Then, in sheer weariness, the anger died within his soul, leaving but ashes and despair. Slowly he turned away, but with a quick motion she stood in his path. Bless, she cried. How can I grow pure? He looked at her listlessly. Never, never again, he slowly answered her. Dark fear swept her drawn face. Never, she gasped. Pity surged and fought in his breast, but one thought held and burned him. He bent to her fiercely. Who, he demanded. She pointed toward the Cresswell Oaks and he turned away. She did not attempt to stop him again, but dropped her hands and stared drearily up into the clear sky with its shining whirls. Goodbye, bless, she said slowly. I thank God he gave you to me. Just a little time. She hesitated and waited. There came no word as the man moved slowly away. She stood motionless. Then slowly he turned and came back. He laid his hand a moment lightly upon her head. Goodbye, Zora. He sobbed and was gone. She did not look up, but knelt there, silent, dry-eyed, till the last rustle of his going died in the night. And then, like a waiting storm, the torrent of her grief swept down upon her. She stretched herself upon the black and flea-strewn earth and writhed. End of chapter 15 All night, Miss Smith lay holding the quivering form of Zora close to her breast, staring wide-eyed into the darkness, thinking, thinking. In the morning, the party would come. There would be Mrs. Gray and Mary Taylor, Mrs. Vanderpool, who had left her so coldly in the lurch before, and some of the Cresswells. They would come well-fed and impressed with the charming hospitality of their hosts, and rather more than willing to see through those hosts' eyes. They would be in a hurry to return to some social function and would give her work but casual attention. It seemed so dark an ending to so bright a dream. Never for her had a fall opened as gloriously. The love of this boy and girl blossoming as it had beneath her tender care had been a sacred, wonderful history that revived within her memories of long-forgotten days. But above lay the vision of her school redeemed and enlarged, its future safe, its usefulness broadened. Small wonder that to Sarah Smith the future had seemed in November almost golden. Then things began to go wrong. The transfer of the Tolliver land had not yet been effected. The money was ready, but Mr. Tolliver seemed busy or hesitating. Next came this news of Mrs. Gray's probable conditions. So here it was, Christmas time, and Sarah Smith's castles lay almost in ruins about her. The girl moaned in her fitful sleep, and Miss Smith soothed her. Poor child, here too was work, a strange soul cruelly stricken in her youth. Could she be brought back to a useful life? How she seemed such a strong, clear-eyed helper in this crisis of her work. Would Zora make one, or would this blow send her to perdition? Not if Sarah Smith could save her, she resolved, and stared out the window where the pale red dawn was sending its first rays on the white-pillared mansion of the Cresswells. Mrs. Gray saw the light on the columns, too, as she lay lazily in her soft white bed. There was a certain delicious languor in the late lingering fall of Alabama that suited her perfectly. Then, too, she liked the house and its appointments. There was not, to be sure, all the luxury that she was used to in her New York mansion, but there was a certain finish about it, 
and elegance and staid, old-fashioned hospitality that appealed to her tremendously. Mrs. Gray's heart warmed to the sight of Helen in her moments of spasmodic caring for the sick and afflicted on the estate. No better guardian of her philanthropies could be found than these same Cresswells. She must, of course, go over and see dear Sarah Smith, but really there was not much to say or to look at. The prospect seemed almost alluring. Later, Mr. Easterly talked a while on routine business, saying as he turned away, I am more and more impressed, Mrs. Gray, with your wisdom in placing large investments in the South. With peaceful social conditions, the returns will be large. Mrs. Gray heard this delicate flattery complacently. She had her streak of thrift and wanted her business capacity recognized. She listened attentively. For this reason, I trust you'll handle your Negro philanthropies judiciously, as I know you will. There's dynamite in this race problem for amateur reformers, but fortunately you have at hand wise and sympathetic advisors in the Cresswells. Mrs. Gray agreed entirely. Mary Taylor alone of the committee took her commission so seriously as to be anxious to begin work. We ought to visit the school this morning, you know, she reminded the others, looking at her watch. I'm afraid we're late already. The remark created mild consternation. It seemed that Mr. Vanderpool had gone hunting and his wife had not yet arisen. Dr. Boldish was very hoarse. Mr. Easterly was going to look over some plantations with Colonel Cresswell and Mr. Bocum was engrossed in a novel. Clever, but not true to life, he said. Finally, the clergyman and Mr. Bocum, Mrs. Gray, and Mrs. Vanderpool and Miss Taylor started for the school with Harry Cresswell about an hour after lunch. The delay and suppressed excitement among the little folks had upset things considerably there, but at the sight of the visitors at the gate, Miss Smith rang the bell. The party came in laughing and chatting. They greeted Miss Smith cordially. Dr. Boldish was beginning to tell a good story when a silence fell. The children had gathered quietly, almost timidly, and before the distinguished company realized it, they turned to meet that battery of 400 eyes. A human eye is a wonderful thing when it simply waits and watches. Not one of these little things alone would have been worth more than a glance, but together they became mighty and portentous. Mr. Bolcom got out his notebook and wrote furiously therein. Dr. Boldish, naturally the appointed spokesman, looked helplessly about and whispered to Mrs. Vanderpool, What on earth shall we talk about? The Brotherhood of Man? suggested the lady. Hardly advisable, returned Dr. Boldish seriously, in our friend's presence, with a glance toward Cresswell. Then he arose. My friends, he said, touching his fingertips and using blank verse in A minor, This is an auspicious day. You should be thankful for the gifts of the Lord. His bounty surrounds you, the trees, the fields, the glorious sun. He gives cotton to clothe you, corn to eat, devoted friends to teach you. Be joyful, be good. Above all, be thrifty and save your money, and do not complain and whine at your apparent disadvantages. Remember that God did not create men equal but unequal, and set mates and bounds. It is not for us to question the wisdom of the Almighty, but to bow humbly to his will. Remember that the slavery of your people was not necessarily a crime. It was a school of work and love. It gave you noble friends like 
Mr. Cresswell here. A restless stirring in the battery of eyes was turned upon the imperturbable gentleman as if he were some strange animal. Love and serve them. Remember that we can get, after all, little education from books, rather in the fields, at the plow, and in the kitchen. Let your ambition be to serve rather than rule, to be humble followers of the lowly Jesus. With an upward glance, the Reverend Dr. Boldish sat down amid a silence a shade more intense than that which had greeted him. Then slowly, from the far corner, rose a thin voice tremulously. It wavered on the air and almost broke, then swelled in sweet, low music. Other and stronger voices gathered themselves to it until two hundred were singing a soft, minor wail that gripped the hearts and tingled in the ears of the hearers. Mr. Bokum groped with a puzzled expression to find the pocket for his notebook. Harry Cresswell dropped his eyes, and on Mrs. Vanderpool's lips the smile died. Mary Taylor flushed, and Mrs. Gray cried frankly. Poor things, she whispered. Now, said Mrs. Gray, turning about, we haven't but just a moment, and we want to take a little look at your work. She smiled graciously upon Miss Smith. Mrs. Gray thought the cooking school very nice. I suppose, she said, that you furnish cooks for the county. Largely, said Miss Smith. Mrs. Vanderpool looked surprised, but Miss Smith added, This county, you know, is mostly black. Mrs. Gray did not catch the point. The dormitories were neat, and the ladies expressed great pleasure in them. It is certainly nice for them to know what a clean place is, commented Mrs. Gray. Mr. Cresswell, however, looked at the bathroom and smiled. How practical, he said. Can you not stop and see some of the classes? Sarah Smith knew in her heart that the visit was a failure. Still, she would do her part to the end. I doubt if we shall have time, Mrs. Gray returned as they walked on. Mr. Cresswell expects friends to dinner. What a magnificent intelligence office, remarked Mr. Bolcom, for furnishing servants to the nation. I saw splendid material for cooks and maids. And plow boys, added Cresswell. And singers, said Mary Taylor. Well, now... That's just my idea, said Mrs. Gray, that these schools should furnish trained servants and laborers for the South. Isn't that your idea, Miss Smith? Not exactly, the lady replied, or at least I shouldn't put it just that way. My idea is that this school should furnish men and women who can work and earn an honest living, train up families aright, and perform their duties as fathers, mothers, and citizens. Yes, yes, precisely, said Mrs. Gray. That's what I meant. I think the whites can attend to the duties of citizenship without help, observed Mr. Cresswell. Don't let the blacks meddle in politics, said Dr. Boldish. I want to make these children full-fledged men and women, strong, self-reliant, honest, without any ifs and ands to their development, insisted Miss Smith. Of course, and that is just what Mr. Cresswell wants, isn't it, Mr. Cresswell? asked Mrs. Gray. I think I may say yes, Mr. Cresswell agreed. I certainly want these people to develop as far as they can, although Miss Smith and I would differ as to their possibilities, but it is not so much in the general theory of Negro education as in its particular applications where our chief differences would lie. 
I may agree that a boy should learn higher arithmetic, yet object to his loafing in plow time. I might want to educate some girls, but not girls like Zora. Mrs. Vanderpool glanced at Mr. Cresswell, smiling to herself. Mrs. Gray broke in, beaming. That's just it, dear Miss Smith. Just it. Your heart is good, but you need strong, practical advice. You know we weak women are so impractical, as my poor Job so often said. Now I'm going to arrange to endow this school with at least, at least a hundred and fifty thousand dollars. One condition is that my friend Mr. Cresswell here and these other gentlemen. Including sound northern businessmen like Mr. Easterly shall hold this money in trust and expend it for your school as they think best. Mr. Cresswell would be their local representative, asked Miss Smith slowly with white face. Why, yes, yes, of course. There was a long, tense silence. Then the firm reply, Mrs. Gray, I, I thank you, but I cannot accept your offer. Sarah Smith's voice was strong. The tremor had left her hands. She had expected something like this, of course. Yet when it came, somehow it failed to stun. She would not turn over the direction of the school or the direction of the education of these people to those who were most opposed to their education. Therefore, there was no need to hesitate. There was no need to think the thing over. She had thought it over, and she looked into Mrs. Gray's eyes and, with gathering tears in her own, said. Again, I thank you very much, Mrs. Gray. Mrs. Gray was a picture of the most emphatic surprise, and Mr. Cresswell moved to the window. Mrs. Gray looked helplessly at her companions. But I, I don't understand, Miss Smith. Why can't you accept my offer? Because you ask me to put my school in control of those who do not wish for the best interests of black folk, and in particular. I object to Mr. Cresswell," said Miss Smith slowly but very distinctly, because his relation to the forces of evil in this community has been such that he can direct no school of mine. Mrs. Vanderpool moved toward the door, and Mr. Cresswell, bowing slightly, followed. Doctor Boldish looked indignant, and Mr. Bocum dove after his notebook. Mary Taylor, her head in a whirl, came forward. She felt that in some way she was responsible for this dreadful situation, and she wanted desperately to save matters from final disaster. Come, she said, Mrs. Gray, we'll talk this matter over again later. I'm sure Miss Smith does not mean quite all she says. She is tired and nervous. You can join the others, and don't wait for me. I will be along directly. Mrs. Gray was only too glad to escape. And Mr. Bocum got a chance to talk. He drew out his notebook. Awfully interesting, he said. Awfully. Now,、uh, let's see. Oh yes. Did you notice how unhealthy the children looked? Race is undoubtedly dying out. Fact. No hope. Weak. No spontaneity either. Rather languid. Did you notice? Yes. And their heads small and narrow. No brain capacity. They can't concentrate. Notice how some slept when Doctor Boldish was speaking. Mister Cresswell says they own almost no land here. Think of it. This land was worth only ten dollars an acre a decade ago. He says Negroes might have bought all and been rich. Very shiftless. And that singing. Now I wonder where they got the music. Imitation, of course. And so he rattled on. 
noting not the silence of the others. As the carriage drove off, Mary turned to Miss Smith. Now, Miss Smith, she began, but Miss Smith looked at her and said sternly, Sit down. Mary Taylor sat down. She had been so used to lecturing the older woman that the sudden summoning of her well-known sternness against herself took her breath, and she sat awkwardly like the schoolgirl that she was, waiting for Miss Smith to speak. She felt suddenly very young and very helpless. She, who had so jauntily set out to solve this mighty problem by a waving of her wand, she saw with a swelling of pity the drawn and stricken face of her old friend, and she started up. "'Sit down,' repeated Miss Smith harshly. "'Mary Taylor, you are a fool. "'You are not foolish, for the foolish learn. "'You are simply a fool. "'You will never learn. "'You have blundered into this life-work of mine "'and well-nigh ruined it. "'Whether I can save it, God only knows. "'You have blundered into the lives of two loving children "'and sent one wandering aimless on the face of the earth, and the other moaning in yonder chamber with death in her heart. You are going to marry the man that sought Zora's ruin when she was yet a child because you think of his aristocratic pose and pretensions built on the poverty, crime, and exploitation of six generations of serfs. You'll marry him and... But Miss Taylor left to her feet with blazing cheeks. How dare you! She screamed beside herself. But God in heaven help you if you do, finished Miss Smith calmly. End of chapter 16 When slowly from the torpor of ether one wakens to the misty sense of eternal loss, and there comes the exquisite prick of pain, then one feels in part the horror of the ache when Zora wakened to the world again. The awakening was the work of days and weeks, at first, in sheer exhaustion, physical and mental, she lay and moaned. The sense of loss, of utter loss, lay heavy upon her. Something of herself, something dearer than self, was gone from her forever, and an infinite loneliness and silence, as of endless years, settled on her soul. She wished neither food nor words, only to be alone. Then gradually the pain of injury stung her, when the blood flowed fuller. As Miss Smith knelt beside her one night to make her simple prayer, Zora sat suddenly upright, white-swathed, disheveled, with fury in her midnight eyes. I want no prayers, she cried. I will not pray. He is no god of mine. He isn't fair. He knows and won't tell. He takes advantage of us. He works and fools us. All night Miss Smith heard mutterings of this bitterness. And the next day the girl walked her room like a tigress, to and fro, to and fro, all the long day. Toward night a dumb despair settled upon her. Miss Smith found her sitting by the window gazing blankly toward the swamp. She came to Miss Smith slowly and put her hands upon her shoulders with almost a caress. You must forgive me, she pleaded plaintively. I reckon I've been mighty bad with you, and you always so good to me, but, but you see... It hurts so. I know it hurts, dear. I know it does. But men and women must learn to bear their hurts in this world. Not hurts like this. They couldn't. Yes, even hurts like this. Bear and stand straight. Be brave. After all, Zora, no man is quite worth a woman's soul. No love is worth a whole life. Zora turned away with a gesture of impatience. 
You were born in ice, she retorted, adding a bit more tenderly. In clear, strong ice. But I was born in fire. I live. I love. That's all. And she sat down again despairingly and stared at the dull swamp. Miss Smith stood for a moment and closed her eyes upon a vision. Ice, she whispered. My God. Then at length she said to Zora, Zora, there's only one way. Do something. If you sit thus brooding, you'll go crazy. Do crazy folks forget? Nonsense, Zora. Miss Smith ridiculed the girl's fantastic vagaries. Her sound common sense rallied to her aid. They are the people who remember. Sane folk forget. Work is the only cure for such pain. But there's nothing to do. Nothing I want to do. Nothing worth doing. Now. The silver fleece? The girl sat upright. The silver fleece, she murmured. Without further words, slowly she arose and walked down the stairs and out into the swamp. Miss Smith watched her go. She knew that every step must be the keen prickle of awakening flesh, yet the girl walked steadily on. It was the Christmas, not Christmas tide of the North and West, but Christmas of the Southern South. It was not the festival of the Christ child, but a time of noise and frolic and license. The great payday of the year when black men lifted their heads from the years toiling in the earth and had in hand asked anxiously, Master, what have I earned? Have I paid my old debts to you? Have I made my clothes and food? Have I got a little of the year's wage coming to me? Or more carelessly and cringingly, Master, give me a Christmas gift. The lords of the soil stood round, gauging their cotton, measuring their men. Their stores were crowded. Their scales groaned. Their gin sang. In the long run, public opinion determines all wage, but in more primitive times and places, private opinion, personal judgment of some man in power determines. The black belt is primitive, and the landlord wields the power. What about Johnson? calls the head clerk. Well, he's a faithful nigger and needs encouragement. Cancel his debt and give him ten dollars for Christmas. Colonel Cresswell glowed as if he were full of the seasoned spirit. And Saunders? How's his cotton? Good, and a lot of it. He's trying to get away. Keep him in debt, but let him draw what he wants. Aunt Rachel? Hmm. They're way behind, aren't they? Give a couple of dollars, not a cent more. Jim Sykes? Say, Harry, how about that darkest Sykes? Called out the colonel. Excusing himself from his guests, Harry Cresswell came into the office. To them, this peculiar spectacle of the marketplace was of unusual interest. They saw its humor and its crowding, its bizarre effects and unwanted pageantry. Black giants and pygmies were there, kerchiefed aunties, giggling black girls, saffron beauties, and loafing white men. There were mules and horses and oxen, wagons and buggies and carts. But above all, and in all, rushing through, piled and flying, bound and bailed, was cotton. Cotton was currency. Cotton was merchandise. Cotton was conversation. All this was beautiful to Mrs. Gray and unusually interesting to Mrs. Vanderpool. To Mary Taylor, it had the fascination of a puzzle whose other side she had already been partially studying. She was particularly impressed with the joy and abandon of the scene. Light laughter, huge guffaws, handshakes and gossipings. At all events, she concluded, This is no oppressed people. 
and sauntering away from the rest, she noted the smiles of an undersized, smirking yellow man who hurried by with a handful of dollar bills. At a side entrance, liquor was evidently on sale. Men were drinking and women too. Some were staggering, others cursing, and yet others singing. Then suddenly a man swung around the corner, swearing in bitter rage. The damn thieves! They stole a year's work, the white... But someone called, Hush up, Saunders! There's a white woman! There's a white woman! And he threw a startled look at Mary and hurried by. She was perplexed and upset and stood hesitating a moment when she heard a well-known voice. Why, Miss Taylor, I was alarmed for you. You really must be careful about trusting yourself with these half-drunken negras. Wouldn't it be better not to give them drink, Mr. Cresswell, and let your neighbor sell them poison at all hours? No, Miss Taylor. They joined the others, and all were turning toward the carriage when a figure coming down the road attracted them. Quite picturesque, observed Mrs. Vanderpool, looking at the tall, slim girl swaying toward them with a piled basket of white cotton poised lightly on her head. Why, in abrupt recognition, it is our Venus of the roadside, is it not? Mary saw it was Zora. Just then, too, Zora caught sight of them, and for a moment hesitated, then came on. The carriage was in front of the store, and she was bound for the store. A moment Mary hesitated too, and then turned resolutely to greet her. But Zora's eyes did not see her. After one look at that sorrow-stricken face, Mary turned away. Colonel Cresswell stood by the door, his hat on, his hands in his pockets. Well, Zora, what have you there? He asked. Cotton, sir. Harry Cresswell bent over it. Great heavens! Look at this cotton, he ejaculated. His father approached. The cotton lay in silken handfuls, clean and shimmering, with threads full two inches long. The idlers, black and white, clustered round, gazing at it and fingering it with repeated exclamations of astonishment. Where did this come from? asked the colonel sharply. He and Harry were both eyeing the girl intently. I raised it in the swamp, Zoe replied quietly in a dead voice. There was no pride of achievement in her manner, no gladness. All that had flown. Is that all? No, sir. I think there's two bales. Two bales? Where is it? How the devil? The colonel was forgetting his guests, but Harry intervened. You'll need to get it picked right off, he suggested. It's all picked, sir. But where is it? If you send a wagon, sir. But the colonel hardly waited. Hell you, Jim. Take the big mules and drive like, where's that winch? But Zora was already striding on ahead and was far up the red road when the great mules galloped into sight and the long whip snapped above their backs. The colonel was still excited. That cotton must be ours, Harry, all of it, and see that none is stolen. We've got no contract with the winch, so don't dally with her. But Harry said firmly, quietly, It's fine cotton, and she raised it. She must be paid well for it. Colonel Cresswell glanced at him with something between contempt and astonishment on his face. You go along with the ladies, Harry added. I'll see to this cotton. Mary Taylor's smile had rewarded him. Now he must get rid of his company before Zora returned. It was dark when the cotton came. Such a load as Cresswell's store had never seen before. Zora watched it weighed, received the cotton checks, and entered the store. Only the clerk was there, and he was closing. He pointed her carelessly to the office in the back part. 
She went into the small dim room and laying the cotton check on the desk stood waiting. Slowly, the hopelessness and bitterness of it all came back in a great whelming flood. What was the use of trying for anything? She was lost forever. The world was against her. And again she saw the fingers of Elspeth, the long black claw-like talons that clutched and dragged her down, down. She did not struggle. She dropped her hands listlessly, wearily, and stood but half-conscious as the door opened and Mr. Harry Cresswell entered the dimly lighted room. She opened her eyes. She had expected his father. Somewhere way down in the depths of her nature, the primal tiger awoke and snarled. She was suddenly alive from hair to fingertip. Harry Cresswell paused a second and swept her full length with his eye, her profile, the long supple line of bosom and hip, the little foot. Then he closed the door softly and walked slowly toward her. She stood like stone without a quiver. Only her eye followed the crooked line of the Cresswell blue blood on his marble forehead as she looked down from her greater height. Her hand closed almost caressingly on a rusty poker lying on the stove nearby. And as she sensed the hot breath of him, she felt herself purring in a half-heard whisper. I should not like to kill you. He looked at her long and steadily as he passed to his desk. Slowly he lighted a cigarette, opened the great ledger, and compared the cotton check with it. Three thousand pounds, he announced in a careless tone. Yes, that will make about two bales of lint. It's extra cotton, say, fifteen cents a pound, one hundred and fifty dollars, seventy-five dollars to you. Hmm. He took a notebook out of his pocket, pushed his hat back on his head, and paused to relight his cigarette. Let's see. Yo, rent and rations. Elspeth pays no rent, she said slowly, but he did not seem to hear. Yo, rent and rations with the five years back debt. He made a hasty calculation. Will be one hundred dollars. That leaves you twenty-five in our debt. Here's your receipt. The blow had fallen. She did not wince nor cry out. She took the receipt calmly and walked out into the darkness. They had stolen the silver fleece. What should she do? She never thought of appeal to courts, for Colonel Cresswell was justice of the peace, and his son was bailiff. Why had they stolen from her? She knew she was now penniless and, in a sense, helpless. She was now a peon bound to a master's bidding. If Elspeth chose to sign a contract of work for her tomorrow, it would mean slavery, jail, or hounded running away. What would Elspeth do? One never knew. Zora walked on. An hour ago, it seemed that this last blow must have killed her, but now it was different. Into her first despair had crept, in one fierce moment, grim determination. Somewhere in the world sat a great dim injustice that had veiled the light before her young eyes. Just as she raised them to the morning, with the veiling, death had come into her heart. And yet, they should not kill her. They should not enslave her. A desperate resolve to find some way up toward the light, if not to it, formed itself within her. She would not fall into the pit opening before her. Somehow, somewhere, lay the way. She must never fall lower, never be utterly despicable in the eyes of the man she had loved. There was no dream of forgiveness, of purification, of rekindled love. 
All these she placed sadly and gently into the dead past, but in awful earnestness she turned toward the future, struggling blindly, groping in half-formed plans for a way. She came thus into the room where sat Miss Smith, strangely pallid beneath her dusky skin, but there lay a light in her eyes. End of Chapter 17